Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Good morning, class. Um, pleased to have all of you here from Justin's class, and uh, this is going to be quite a departure. You know, some of you were here one other time when I, I filled in when he was out of town, and uh, uh, anyway, we upstairs have been studying 1 Corinthians, and we are definitely not going to finish it today. There are 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, and we are on chapter 11, so we will, we will push forward as far as we can today, but uh, I really encourage all of you to participate in the kind of question and answer way uh, we do this class. So anyway, let me open us with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's more than just a privilege to open the Bible and study your word. It is a wonderful gift that you have given us. And in this turbulent world that we live in, we thank you for this firm foundation that you give us to stand on. We need not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and crazy idea that comes up from the culture. But we know the truth because you have given it to us and you are truth. So with all that being said, I pray for your blessing over our time here today as we study through for this last time, 1 Corinthians. Help us to rightly understand. But Lord, I pray that you would never let us become arrogant or prideful of our knowledge. We know that what we learn ultimately is designated so that we might love you better and love other people better, fulfilling the first and second greatest commandments. So keeping that in mind, Lord, Please help us to keep that in mind as we study through chapter 11, 12, and maybe even 13 today that we would leave here more in love with you and more in love with other people than we were when we walked in. I pray for Justin. Thank you for the incredible gifts of teaching and leadership that you have given him. Pray for your blessing over him in his absence. We thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Amen. <clears throat> Just a little refresher. We're going to start in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 today. And it's concerning the Lord's Supper. The first part of this chapter was about women's head coverings in church and men and women's roles in the church and in the society at large. We have pretty much finished that, and I do not want to go back over it again. Uh, so I know that those of you who weren't in this class would probably really be interested in the conversation we had last week. Uh, it's uh, challenging, uh, but not threatening. Uh, just as a refresher, the Corinthian church was 
to say it as politely as possible, a mess. When Paul left there after establishing the church in Corinth, he thought he had things on a stable foundation. It was a very short time later he started getting notifications that things were going sideways. And in just about every way you could imagine, even to the extent of profaning the Lord's Supper, which is where we start today. These people were a very educated people, and he is not talking to unbelievers here. This book, like all of Scripture, is written to believers, but it's almost hard to believe that they could have been guilty of the kinds of things that they were guilty of, but they were. And this book is an admonition to them to right their ways and live holy lives. So with that little bit of a foundation established, let's uh, read starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, relating to the Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, his, until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Most Bible scholars believe that 1 Corinthians was written before any of the Gospels. So if that's true, and the evidence points that it probably is true, this is the first recording of the Lord's Supper. Right here, starting in, uh, in verse 23.
We have to understand the custom of this time. And it's even reflected in how Jesus recited the Lord's Supper. You know, after eating, they did this. Then the communion service started. And that was the custom in the church at that time. The church would gather for a, a big meal. And they were called love feasts. It's referenced two other places in Scripture, in Jude and in Second Peter. So everyone would bring their food and drink and eat. And Paul alludes to it here. Wealthy people brought a lot of stuff and engorged themselves and got drunk and behaved poorly. And even more than that, they lorded it over the poor in the church there. And that created these enormous factions there. And that's the reason Paul is scolding them so severely here for their bad behavior. Now that just seems almost unimaginable to us today. Or does it? So where we were going to start today was with question six. What abuses had crept into the celebration of communion? Well, I've already answered that question for you. So we're, we're going to move on because I want to, I really want to get through this chapter and even the next chapter on spiritual gifts because I want to get to chapter 13, which is really probably the primary focus that Paul had for the whole book to get to what we call the love chapter. And the reason for that, all of these abuses in the Corinthian church and you know, those of us who have been in this class, we've gone through many of them. All the crazy things, the sexual debauchery within the church. And, and these things are just almost unimaginable to us. Were because of an incredible lack of love in that church. They possessed the spiritual gifts. They were smart people. They knew, they knew scripture. They knew doctrine. But they had not love. So that's where we're... We're trying to push this today as we work through. Someone help me here a little bit. Question number seven I had, what's the, what's the general purpose and significance of the Lord's Supper? Why do we do it? Remember Christ. Pardon me? Remember Christ. Remember Christ. Do it in remembrance of me. Yes. Communion can be uh, ritualistic. You know, we celebrate it once a month. Some churches celebrate every week. Why is it important for us to examine ourselves? to prepare for taking the Lord's Supper. Better yet, let me ask that question differently. Let's go to the last question of this chapter. How might someone eat or drink in an unworthy manner? I've already given you one answer. Just ritualistically. Kathy? Just to satisfy the hunger? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Hard for us to imagine that in the way we do it today, but that was the case then. Yeah. If we're trying to satisfy our hunger for the Lord, that might be a good thing. <laughs> Other ideas? What kind of things might we discover when we examine our hearts that would might make us that could possibly make us unworthy to take communion? Ooh. Everybody hear that grudges bitterness that we have may have towards someone. A believer or an unbeliever. Harboring harsh feelings. complacency. Yeah, just kind of a ho-hum attitude about it. As a matter of fact, this is my opinion. I think communion is pretty complex from that standpoint that it is a time to look back with great grief over why we even have to do this, that our sin created this. On the other hand, it's a time of great joy. And, and it is right in celebrating communion to be emotional. It is not a bad thing. It would be a good thing, actually. And sometimes we kind of just go through the process, don't we? I do. I do. But typically when, when we celebrate it, I use it as a time almost like an um, a, um, anniversary celebration to look back what it was like at the beginning. Now think of how wonderful that was and then bring it to the present day and look at it and then forecast it to the future. And that's not a bad way to look at communion to, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can celebrate it or participate ritualistic, just going through the motions, emotions, and or no emotion. We can come with feelings of bitterness toward other people. And to do that is not just dishonoring the ceremony itself, it's dishonoring the Lord. That's pretty serious business. So we should examine our hearts honestly in matters of our attitudes toward the Lord and towards other people. And it's certainly proper to um, respect it for the holiness of the, of the ceremony itself. It's a dignified time. Debbie said that John MacArthur had a good commentary on it. It's not to degrade the ceremony by holding on to sins that we have. That kind of a good summary of that. Uh, I have heard people say that, that I just can't forgive myself for this or that or the other. That thinking 
is a more serious sin than the one that the person can't forgive themselves for. Do you mean to tell me that Christ's death was not enough? That he should have done more? It wasn't adequate for you? That is really serious sin. And we don't want to take that to the communion table. Any other ideas? Comments? Okay. We're going to move on to chapter 12. Spiritual gifts. Paul actually dedicates a couple chapters towards to spiritual gifts, uh, 12 and, and 14. And we won't get to 14. <clears throat> now, regarding spiritual gifts, I'll read through this as long as my voice holds out anyway. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. But if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there were many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor... Again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unrepresentable parts are treated with great, greater modesty, which 
our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you st uh, a still more excellent way. <laughs> After having studied through 11 chapters of 1 Corinthians, it's, it's not hard for us to understand that there was even uh, one-upsmanship with spiritual gifts of someone having some gift and lording it over other people that didn't have it and mocking them for it. I mean, that was the level of, of incredible sinfulness in this church. Starting on our first, qu first question, many of the Corinthians, Corinthian believers had participated in pagan religions accompanied by pagan practices. And they really brought some of those into the church even after they got saved. What is Paul's test for discerning a person under the influence of God? And we're looking at the first three verses. It's right there. Exactly. What they say about Jesus, both, both Savior and Lord. I'm sure most of you have been around someone at some time who spoke of Jesus in kind of a mocking way or a whimsical way. I have, and people who even profess to be Christians. It really hurt me when I heard that. To hear Jesus mocked or just spoken of in any kind of a whimsical way. I remember years ago, uh, there was a not exactly the same thing, but it's close enough. There was a very popular movie. It's been probably 30 years ago. And I can't believe Mary and I went to see it. Uh, it it uh, starred George Burns. You remember it, Deb? The, the title of the, the movie was Oh God. And, and George Burns portrayed God in this movie. And it was pretty successful at the box office. So as Hollywood does, they made a sequel to Oh God. Does anybody remember the title of the second one? Exactly. Oh God, you devil. Serious sin to take God's name frivolously like that.
What are spiritual gifts? How do we get them? Spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit under His sovereignty, under His providence. He decides who gets what and when. And we don't choose them. Yeah. yeah. It eludes that. If you were to choose them, right at the end, if you were to choose them, desire the higher gifts. And we're going to talk about that. What is that? What is that? Scripture tells us what it is. They're not natural gifts. You know, everyone has natural gifts, believers and unbelievers. Uh, you know, there are unbelievers who have incredible athletic skills. There, there are unbelievers who are uh, brilliant scientists or teachers or whatever. But the spiritual gifts are reserved specifically for Christians. And, and what is their purpose? Exactly. To help each other in building up the church. They, they don't exist for whatever spiritual gifts my, I may have for, as a kind of a plaything for me. They're for you. And yours are for me. They help build up the body of the church. And they are all important. Some are more visible than others. But all of them are important and should never be in any way uh, relegated to higher or lower status. And that's why Paul uses this rather graphic uh, description of anatomy in, in showing how important that is. I mean, if you think your little toe is not very important, have you ever gotten it infected? You know, your whole body suffers because of that. Or a, or a tooth. It's not much in itself, but when it gets an abscess in it, uh, you're pretty miserable. So, a good analogy he makes there in helping us to understand the, the unity in, in these gifts. There are two, in speaking in a general way, there are two types of spiritual gifts. Speaking and serving. Speaking gifts or prophecy. Now, we've got to be careful with that one. Uh, as soon as I say that word, what, what I think, what probably most of you think, is foretelling of the future. And, and that certainly is a definition of prophecy, but it is a secondary or minor definition of prophecy. What is it, Deb? Exactly. That's it. Speaking or teaching the Word of God. That is the primary definition of prophecy. Other speaking gifts are well, teaching, obviously, and preaching. Knowledge, wisdom, exhortation. These serving gifts are leadership, helps. Some, sometimes there's hospitality is mentioned as that. Uh, giving, mercy, faith. 
discernment, or discernment of spirits as sometimes it is called, but all are given to strengthen the church and to glorify the God, glorify God. As I said before, even the natural gifts that unbelievers have, that atheists have, are still gifts from God, but they are not spiritual gifts built for, or given for the building up of the church. They are only given uh, to those who are saved. What might make some church members feel useless or envious? And how does Paul respond to this? Looking at verses uh, 15 through 19. Skim over them briefly. Let me get you started. We people, Christians and other folks, seem to have kind of an innate desire to assess value or significance to just about everything. You know, our house, our car, our sport coat, hair, kind of glasses I'm wearing. kind of golf clubs I have. I had a friend that was very proud of his refrigerator. <laughs> his refrigerator. I had no idea what a sub-zero was, but he did. And you can see very quickly how when we apply this to the spiritual gifts, how this could make things very divisive in the church. Well, I have this. And the implication is you don't. (laughs) We're going to get into that little thing when we get into the love chapter next. Things about jealousy and envy. How antithetical that is to the Christian life and certainly in regard to spiritual gifts. And to even question someone else's gifts or to demean them in some way is really to demean the wisdom of God himself, who, as David said, dispenses those gifts. in in his sovereignty and ultimate wisdom that Sue has what she has that Warren has what he has every one of you in this room who's a Christian has one or more spiritual gifts there are inventories that you can take questionnaires I would not particularly recommend that you do it 
they can be a little revealing about things that are important to you, but uh, I've done it before, and when I finished it, I thought, eh, I, I just wouldn't put a lot of, uh, a lot of faith in them. And I will say this, sometimes you very definitely know what your giftedness is. Be careful with that. The gift is not greater than the giver of the gift. And you may be called on some t to do something sometime that really kind of falls out of your giftedness. You may not have the gift to teach, but you may be asked to teach sometime. That doesn't mean you should, well, I can't do that. I, I don't have that gift. More likely, someone who does not have one of these service gifts could be asked to, hmm, wait tables for the ladies' Christmas tea. Well, that, I don't have that gift. I'll suck it up and help. You know, get involved. It doesn't always have to fit right in your little gift slot. And it's particularly those that have the more presentable gifts, as they're mentioned here, the showier gifts, sometimes don't want to do the others. There's pride in that. Gift of teaching or exhortation or something, one of those more showy kind of or leadership, even which is a service gift. But then you're asked to do something menial. Oh, that's really not my gift of this. We need to, I don't want to rob someone else of their blessing. No, it might be your blessing to, to do that one this time. Okay. Comments, questions so far? I don't want to do all the talking here. You know, the, the, one of the final questions here is what might, what might make some feel superior or self-sufficient? Well, we've really talked about that. You know, getting haughty about whatever your gift is. It's a very humbling thing to know that any gift you have, whether it's a natural gift of athleticism or uh, you got a great big brain and you can do calculus really easy. Well, uh, that made me be a golf pro, by the way, calculus. I decided that I better do something else. Um, we can't take great pride in any of those. They were all given to us. It's up to us to develop them and to use them. Even if it's a spiritual gift, practicing them, you get better at them. Okay, our final question here. Oh, great. We're going to have time for chapter 13. The meaning of verse 31, which says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. The meaning of that verse has been disputed. What are your ideas about that? Yes. Everybody hear that? The you is a plural you. 
you know, it's for everyone. One other, just one other comment. Yeah, more. Yeah, that's the question here. <laughs> no, I get to ask the questions. You give the answers. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. You know, just step back for a second. All these spiritual gifts, the higher ones, the, the, the more showy ones, I'd rather say, uh, and all of them, they all have to operate under the aegis of the fruit of the Spirit. If, if you get out of that, you're, you're exercising your gift out of pride or something else. But when they are manifested through the fruit of the Spirit, then they have real power and effectiveness in, in the church. Most think that this higher gift uh, is prophecy to answer your question or you know teaching many in the current Corinthian church and churches every century since have thought it was tongues That was the great, one of the great sins of this church. There was a real haughtiness about the gift of tongues. That they had a, a, a greater closeness to God because of this gift. And they, they lorded that one over the rest of the church there. In my opinion, the answer is in the next chapter. And what do we commonly call chapter 13? The what? The love chapter. That'll give you my opinion, Warren. None of these spiritual gifts are worth a hoot if they're not undergirded by love. The church at Corinth had it all except love. And the church was a colossal failure because of it. And Paul built these previous 12 chapters to teach this in chapter 13. Chapter 13, 13. And now... Abide in faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Chapter 14, verse 1. So here you have 13, 13. That's the last verse of chapter uh, 13. 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, there are both of those gifts are mentioned. 
So it's got to be one or the other or both. But those are what Paul has designated as higher gifts. Love undergirds every one of them. But prophecy is likewise very, very important. Okay? They're all important. Okay. Let's read chapter 13. And we're going to have just about time to do some explanation of it. 13, the way of love. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all away, all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, ouch, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then on, as I said earlier, chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And then chapter 14 goes on with Paul scolding the church over these div divisive issues over the gift of tongues. I wish we had time to get to that. Because it, it is something that is still divisive in the church today. Now, you all know who attend here, we are what is called a cessationist church. There are continuation churches that believe that some of these more ecstatic gifts, particularly tongues and healing, are still present in the church. We cessationist church say, no, those gifts ceased back in the first century. Um, But others claim that they still exist, and particularly the gift of tongues. You know, in, in our country, I guess they've always been around. But back in the very, very early 1900s, there was a revival that erupted in Los Angeles on Azusa Street. And it was known as that. It was the Azusa Street Revival. And there were several... Uh, pastors in this little church praying together 
where all of a sudden there was something like a thunderbolt and knocked them out of their chairs. At least that's the report telling you what his history says about this. And they came up speaking in tongues. And it just caught on like wildfire in Los Angeles. And that revival went on for about 10 years. And it was the rise of Pentecostalism in the United States. It, it spread from there throughout the country. Just a little side note. Question number one, for those of you who have your, your book, what is the tragedy of using spiritual gifts without love? It's the first three verses here. Yes. Useless. Okay. Another history thing about that I read somewhere about the, the Corinthians participated in a lot of pagan festivals and things before they were saved. And one of the things that happened in those was there were a lot of drum beating and beating on, literally beating on cymbals. So Paul is kind of mocking that, that here are these crazy things that you all engaged in uh, before you were Christians, if you don't have love, you're still like a clanging cymbal. Just making a lot of noise, but not accomplishing anything. And as we mentioned earlier, without love, those spiritual gifts can devolve into infighting and one-upsmanship. Okay. Now, I'm going to Get, we have these verses here about what love does and doesn't do. And I've just cherry-picked about eight or nine of them. And we probably, that'll be probably all, it will be all we'll get through today. Um, but I, I want you to talk to me a little bit about these. Love is not jealous. I'm not taking them in particular order here, by the way. What does jealousy look like? Envy of another. And it could be envy of anything. Well, I wish I had that sport coat Bob has. My wife gave me that as a present. I like it. Moth got in it back here somewhere, so don't comment about that if you see a little trail through there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's wanting something that someone else has. In its worst form, it's not only wanting something that someone else has, but it's wanting them to not have it. I don't want that guy to have a sub-zero refrigerator. I want one, even though it wouldn't fit in my kitchen. That's how wicked it is. You want things that don't even help you because you're envious of someone else having it. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't know that. What about boasting or bragging? Pride. Just a real obvious manifestation of it, isn't it, Paul? I catch myself doing that. Pretty subtle about it. <laughs> Until Marianne reminds me of it. Uh, I thank her for that. Do it in ways that we don't even know we're doing it. 
parading our accomplishments, usually exaggerating them when we do. What about arrogance? Kind of a, like pride. It just breeds contentiousness. Being big-headed rather than big-hearted. What about love does not insist on its own way? You ever catch yourself insisting on your own way? When we do that, typically we are more concerned about ourselves than we are another person or other people around us. And what does the Bible say about that? It said that we should consider others as more important than us. In, in Romans, I think chapter 12, Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. How do we... Rejoice might be too strong a word. How do we revel sometimes in wrongdoing? Yes, that is probably, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, you would have. My oldest son and I were at a, together for the gospel thing over in Louisville. It's, oh, it's been 10 or 12 years ago. And John MacArthur was doing one of the teachings, and it was just wonderful. But he was talking about some of the doofus stuff that the disciples were doing. And he said, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have done that. My son leaned over me and said, yes, you would have. <laughs> We have, the, we have the beauty of having the scripture and seeing what they did that was wrong. Uh, yeah, if you'd have been there, you know, you'd have done that too. As a matter of fact, if we'd have been there, we'd have probably volunteered to drive the nails. We have a friend, a friend, husband and wife. And years ago, we were at, a, at this friend's house. And the wife was telling my wife about this little book she kept. That every time her husband did something that offended her, she wrote it in her book. Love does not keep track of wrongdoings. Love is quick to forgive. Love believes all things. Love is not cynical. It's not suspicious. Here's one that's a challenge in that. It ascribes to other people the highest motivation for their behavior and words, not the lowest. 
it won't gossip about it. You know, it's, it's so easy when someone does something that's inappropriate to just take them down to their ankles, if not in your words, in your mind. Once again, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Like, we wouldn't. Love endures all things. How might that manifest itself? Well, love holds on to those it loves. It stands up against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop hoping. It will not stop loving because it cannot stop loving. There's always a song that somebody wrote that talks about these things. Anybody remember one of them? Ray Charles. I can't stop loving you. I've made up my mind. Living memories of a long lost time. True love endures. It can even, it can even uh, survive hurts. It can survive wrong being done. It will survive wrong being done. It will bear up under what otherwise is unbearable. It endures when anything else, else than love would give up. Well, I've gone over our time, and still not really plumbed the depths of this, but I think we've done adequately for the time we have here today. So thank you all for your attentiveness and your help. Mm-hmm.